Hebrews chapter 9. I'm sorry to confuse. Yes, we're in Hebrews chapter 9. All right, now that we've got all that squared away. So you'll recall this morning, we looked at the the greater sacrifice that is established in Jesus Christ, and hopefully we've cleared up a little bit of what the author is doing. Now that we're coming towards the end of his argument, we can see how all of these things are beginning to piece together. First, he gives us the picture that Jesus Christ is greater than everything. Then he tells us Jesus Christ is greater as a high priest, that he's greater in terms of the sacrifice that he makes, and he's greater in terms of the temple or the the place of worship, because he worships in the real holy places. All these things, of course, are integral to what it meant to worship in the Old Testament. And because our author is writing to a Jewish audience, well, this is important for them to see. You've got this sacrifice, the priest, and the temple. Well, these things matter. Of course, the problem is how do we convince this Jewish audience to set these things aside Who's with the children? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I would never go off and leave them by themselves. I wouldn't think that you would. Okay. The panic in your face. All right, so you got these three things. Oh, my heart's settling down. I'm sorry. (laughs) Anyways, you got these three things that are integral to the Hebrew faith. And the hard part is, how do I convince these people? Or rather, how do I show these people what they already know? Everything that's already been written in the Old Testament. How do I show them that these things need to be set aside for what is greater? Well, again, this is pretty relevant to us. I think the hardship that we have in looking at the book of Hebrews is we'd like to look at it and we'd say... Man, I sure am glad I'm not a Jew, that I would have to go through all of this. But the reality is, we have so much that we hang on to in the same way that something needs to be set aside to embrace where we are going. Some things that have become distractions or stumbling blocks. I don't know what that application looks like for you, but I definitely see it in my own life. Looking at our text, our author is going to move now from this high priest that's greater in terms of sacrifice, who is able to comfort even the conscious minds of the worshiper. And he's going to show us exactly what makes us greater. We're going to begin in verse 15. Looking at our text, it begins with, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not the first covenant was Therefore, even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scattered wool and hyssop 
and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would not have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now, the point that our author is making, and I get that this is a large portion of of text, but here's the good news. This means that we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 next time we come to Hebrews. So we're, we're moving right along. The, what, he's, what he's saying here is, therefore the mediator of Christ who comes in this new covenant is bringing us something that is greater in the sense of what it does for us. What we have to connect is that the covenant that God establishes with his people that we looked at in chapter 8, the covenant is the means of blessing. It is the vehicle by which God's people are blessed. Looking at it in that way, covenant actually takes on a new term. Another word for covenant would be a testament, as in the last will and testament that somebody ascribes. We see that in verse 15 through 17. This entire thing makes reference now where the author is going to play on the second meaning of the word covenant. Because he's trying to prove not only that Christ was greater, but that it was necessary for him to die. That him dying doesn't make less who he was. Beginning in verse 15, we find the covenant as a means of blessing. In that, a person who leaves a testament or a will is able to direct how their estate would be given to someone else. Some of us, that might look like contributing to something that matters a great deal to us, like Christian education. It might be going directly to the church. Whatever it is, this gift allows us to direct whatever a state gets left behind, where it might go. Now, Jesus Christ died with a will. He died with a will. That's what our author is saying. His will was to share all of his blessings, which are rightfully and only his, as the Son of God, to share his inheritance with those that would put their faith in him. In this way, death was necessary. Our author says in verse 17, that for a will to take effect only at death since it, is in force as, since it is not in force as long as the one who makes it is alive. 
Now, I have a will. Michelle doesn't like to talk about it. Michelle does not have a will, so she will be intertestor or whatever the word is whenever she goes. But, but I have a will. It, it's, the, it's the uh-oh folder. And it's sitting on a bookshelf in our room. And Michelle, I don't even think, knows that it's there because she avoids making eye contact with it. But it has everything in it. In the event that I die, I want you all to know that Michelle will be taken care of. I've purchased a life insurance policy. And the folder spells out, as you open it up, it has who will be the executor of my state. And then it has instructions for them on how to file the claim with the life insurance company. It has everything that follows after that. It has a letter in there for Michelle. Now she's getting teary-eyed. She doesn't like thinking about this. But I care about what happens after I go. There's people that depend on me. There's people that, that, that need my care. I don't want, as, especially as a Christian, I do not want anyone to decide how the things that God has given me in this life are to be used. God has entrusted those things to me. And you call me silly for thinking otherwise, but I believe that having a last will and testament is an essential part <laughs> of living for the glory of God's kingdom in our final stewardship. So I have a will. That's there to benefit Michelle. And someday when I strike it rich, some other, hopefully the kingdom of God will benefit from that. But in the time being, um, I'm just going to direct Michelle to continue to be a faithful steward of all that God gives her, including tithes and offerings. So just remember that. You still have to tithe after I go. Jesus had a will. My estate is incredibly small compared to Christ. He's greater than all of creation, greater than all of the angels, the author of Hebrews says. His inheritance far surpasses anything that we could even begin to comprehend. And yet Christ, in His last will and testament, what was His dying wish on the cross but to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His last will and testament was that you and I would be able to inherit all the blessings of this eternal kingdom. An infinite amount of blessings. All because of the covenant that He has entered in with His people. Establishing us as a people of His own possession. The death of Christ was necessary because so long as Christ lived, his, test, his will could never come into full effect. But we find that His death was necessary first so that all of these blessings, His will could be brought forward, but also, verse 18, because that is the inauguration of the covenants. The first covenant, in actual fact, the first covenant would have been with Noah, right? Whenever God said that He'll never again flood the earth and He gave the bow as a symbol. But... Here, the author is going to make reference to the first covenant in terms of the first covenant that wasn't made to an individual. So that throws out the Noah covenant and it throws out the Abraham covenant. 
the covenant that established the nation of Israel, as they were called out of Egypt, as they were called out of slavery, as they were brought through the wilderness, as they approached Mount Sinai, as Moses ascended up to the mountain, and God gave him his word. The next thing that followed was that Moses would come down, and I won't study this because I don't want to belabor the point. I already know I'm too nerdy as it is, and so I'll give this to you as homework, and you can be nerdy on your own time. You can look at Exodus chapter 24 as Moses comes down from the covenant, the way that the covenant was initiated or inaugurated or substantiated, whatever word you want to use there, the way that it started. Moses comes down and he reads the law. Now the whole law. He reads the law to the people. Then, according to the word of God, he takes hyssop, and, and twine, he dips it in blood, and he sprinkles it on all of the people. Doesn't that sound like a good time? I think that would be pretty stinky. <laughs> but he's, that's what he does. And it doesn't happen, he doesn't do it to them without, they don't have, uh, they have a say in this. Before he sprinkles blood on the people, after they read the law, what do the people of Israel have to do? They say that we're going to keep the word of the Lord. This is their response to God commanding a covenant to them. God has given them all the instructions to be His people. He says they're going, He's going to bless them through this covenant, that if they don't keep His word, that curses will follow. He says He's going to make them their own. And Moses reads it to them, and the people of Israel say, Yeah, that sounds good. We want that. We want the blessings of the Almighty God upon us. We want to be His people. And so we're going to enter into this covenant voluntarily. God's commanded it. But we're agreeing to it. Right here, right now, at the footstep of Mount Sinai, this is what we're going to do. It brings them into community because it establishes the bounds of the entire nation of Israel, the way that they're supposed to keep these things. And here's what's wonderful about it. Moses sprinkles blood on them to set them aside as holy because it's the blood of the covenant that establishes them. This is the same thing that Christ said at the Lord's Supper whenever he told the disciples to drink, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant. Right? This blood before the people is what inaugurates. It's why Christ's death was necessary, because it's the blood. Oh, as I look at verse 21 and 22, I, I see that it was not just the people that Moses sprinkled with blood, but it was also that he sprinkled all of these symbols or these shadows or these types. Verse 21 begins, and he says that he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. And indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Now, he says almost because you can't put blood on the incense. That would just ruin them. And so instead, you use fire. In some cases, you use water. Anyways, he says almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, this isn't just a picture of how the covenant was inaugurated, but this is the way that forgiveness is actually established. As we move further and further away from the ancient days of our religion, such blood talk has really become kind of gross towards people. Now I mentioned, doesn't it sound like fun to sprinkle blood on everyone? 
No, it doesn't. I think as we think about blood, it becomes more and more grotesque, but we must realize that it is the blood that is necessary. In fact, blood talk's necessary. We don't... We sing songs about the blood of Christ for the, for the sake of being... Um, my mouth is not connecting to my brain tonight. I want to say macabre. Okay, I said it. Um, we, we don't sing songs like that for the sake of... some kind of nasty, old kind of depiction. We sing songs like that about the blood of Christ because the blood of Christ is essential. Here to my heart was the blood applied. Without the blood, there would be no forgiveness of sins. Not only is Christ's death necessary because it is what brings about the forgiveness of sins, but we must remember also that it brings about the ratification of his last will and testament and the inauguration or the replacement of the old system. Now looking at verses 23 through 28, we find something particularly exciting. This is now no longer where we're going to contrast what was happening in the old, but now we get to look at what is greater in the new. See, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the rites, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those. I love these last two words. To save those who eagerly are waiting for Him. Now we're going to get to that last verse here in just a minute. Real fast, let's walk through the rest of this passage. Now we've already looked at the fact that Jesus Christ is now in the real sanctuary which is in heaven. He's no longer walking into a place that was crafted by man's hands, but He's going to a place that mirrors what was always in heaven. Christ ascends into heaven. Our focus in this passage, I believe, should be on the word that continues to show up. That is, the word appear. Christ makes three appearances that are of significance. The first one, found in verses 23 through 24, is the fact that Jesus Christ, when he died, appeared in heaven. Whatever great mystery it is that takes place in forgiving sins, whether it was accomplished on the cross, which I believe it was accomplished on the cross, but as he went as mediator for this covenant before God, Christ went to heaven. He went there and he established everything that the author of Hebrews has written about so far. The priesthood, the covenant, and his church. All of these things are made and consecrated through His holy worship. 
Verses 25 and 28, 25 through 28, tell us of the time when Christ appeared not just in the holy places, but that he appeared once for a sacrifice. Now, this is significant because we see the main difference between the Old Testament sacrifice and the New Testament sacrifice here. The Old Testament sacrifice as a mere image, as a shadow, as whatever you want, an antitype would be the real nerdy, that's the technical term, as whatever it was, had to continue to be done. It was not effectual in accomplishing what it set out to do. It didn't clear the conscience. We looked at that this morning. But you know what else it didn't do? It didn't actually forgive sin. It was always the work being done in heaven that forgave sin. The reason for these rituals, the reason why these rites had to be carried out was because they reminded the people to look towards heaven. This is the reminder that we find as Moses is writing to the people of Israel, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's writing to the people. He's about to surrender his leadership role. And he's telling them, I want you to take care of yourselves. You have a new leader here, but before I go with you, remember the word that God gave us. And he puts a remarkable amount of emphasis on worshiping God in the heart. As you get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, he tells of a time when Israel's going to disobey. And because they disobey, what do you think is going to happen? Well, the terms of the covenant are going to come out. They're going to experience curses, a.k.a. time of exile. So they have a time of exile. And what does God, what, what God, through the prophet or the preacher, Moses, say? At that time, when you cry out to God, He will respond to you. God's going to respond to the people whenever they cry out to Him. It doesn't matter how far away they've gone or what period of exile. When you cry out in your heart, the Word of God is near you because you, as the people of God, are able to know Him in the covenant that He's established with you. And because you're able to know Him, you know to whom you're supposed to be calling out. There is no repeated sacrifice in this new system. There is no continued need to make sure that we keep up with rituals in order that our conscience would be cleansed because we have in the new covenant Christ who comes as a sacrifice once and for all. Once and for all. That means two things. It means that for all of eternity, since the beginning of creation, people, whenever they were practicing the worship of God faithfully, they would have been looking forward to the day that the cross would happen. And it means since that time when Christ was crucified on the cross, that everyone is looking back to that time as the basis of real salvation. There is no salvation outside of Christ because His salvation happened only once. And it happened for all people. Establishing them no longer just as a nation that's been inherited these blessings from Abraham through the covenant in Mount Sinai. But now in this new covenant that establishes a people of both Gentiles, both Greeks, both Romans, both women and children and Scythian and slave. All people are welcomed into this without any barriers. He dies as a sacrifice once and for all at the end of the age to put away sin. 
Verse 26 uses that phrase, end of an age, because this age is the end. There's no more of this story left to be told in this age. This is the end age. I think most of you already know that. I feel privileged to say that I pastor a church of some pretty biblically mature folks. But this is a real misconception that a lot of people have. That we are currently living in the church age and that we're looking forward to the end age that will come in at some other point. The reality is we have been living at the end age ever since Jesus was crucified. (coughs) And this, too, will come to an end. Christ appeared first in heaven. He appeared second as a sacrifice at the end of the age. But he's going to appear third time. Is that not what the text says? So Christ, having been offered once to bear for the sins of many, will appear, it says a second time, but we have to remember that in verse 23, he appeared in heaven. So this is really the third time. So Christ, having been offered once to bear for the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the time that Christians get to look forward to. This is the blessing of the new covenant. I know I'm a bit difficult to follow sometime, but, sometimes, but if you're following the logic and what I'm presenting to you, the covenant is the vehicle of God's blessing towards His people. That blessing that we look forward to comes in Christ's second return. This is the blessing that we're waiting for. The text says, eagerly waiting for. As a matter of fact, that's one word. Oh, and I love this word. I didn't even know it until a few minutes ago. I looked it up because I was curious if eagerly waiting was related at all to the word hope. Because when I think about my Christian hope and my expectation that I have, the only thing that I could look at when I look at what we are eagerly waiting for would be my hope in Christ that He will return and that He will redeem me, that all things will be set aside. No longer will we be encumbered or burdened with all the things of this world. Even the difficulty of trying to run a church. Right? Oh, it's so much work everywhere we turn. It seems like it's work here and work there and work there. I just want to celebrate God and worship Him. I think that's a very good idea. I think that's what we should do. Maybe we should just stop working and start worshiping God. That's a fantastic idea, as a matter of fact. Because our hope is set that the day is coming soon, that He will come. This word eagerly waiting, what makes it so unique is the fact that it's actually three words rolled up into one. I won't break it apart because I don't want to be, I don't want to do that to you all this evening. It's too late. That's something we do in the morning. But I do want to look at what it means. The basis of this word is actually the verb to welcome somebody. The basis of this word is the same word for welcoming somebody into your, into your home or to receive somebody or to take something, to take something that's been given to you. The author uses two prepositions to change the meaning of that word. 
to say that from out of my waiting or from out of my longing or from out of this new covenant that's been applied to my heart, I receive what is coming forward. To eagerly wait for something then means, in the way that I understand it, that when we are so focused on what has been purchased for us in this new covenant, that our heart is always waiting, always anticipating that the next moment might be reunification with Christ. Just imagine for a moment what it would be like to live like that. I know we're all Christians, and so, of course, that's how we always live every single day and every minute of our lives. But I'm a real Christian, and that's not how I live every moment of my life. I struggle with burdens and other things, and I'm sure that you do too. I worry about tomorrow. You know that I worry about tomorrow. I told you I have a will. And it's not just some haphazard will. It's put together the right way. I've taken time to put instructions in there, to leave letters in there. I don't know what tomorrow brings. But I don't live my life thinking about that will. Could you imagine if I was freed of all of the burdens? If you were freed of all of those burdens and your heart simply waited for the next moment that you thought Christ would come back. Can you imagine all of the things that distract us in life? I mean, we live in a fast-paced world, waking up on time, which is far overrated. Can you imagine our hearts being so given over to Christ that we simply live every moment of our day waiting for Him to return? How many decisions do we make as we go throughout our life? This is a reality. How many decisions do we make as we go throughout our life without really considering what the eternal implications of them are. And we simply think that, well, in the next moment, if it was wrong, I can simply repent of my sins because I have a Savior who is faithful and just to forgive me. Can you imagine what it would be like if if we lived our lives with the expectation that we would be face-to-face and the judgment shouldn't come after If every decision that we made, we were immediately in that moment, at the moment of judgment. To eagerly wait for Christ means that our hearts are constantly set on this. This word appears only one other time in the entire Bible. That's in Philippians 3.20 where we see the exact same thing, eagerly waiting for God. That means that the only time that this word appears in the whole of the New Testament is in reference to receiving Christ. Now, I think that this has implications, too, for what it means to be saved, to be brought into the kingdom of God. It does not mean that we understand everything that is in the Bible and that we are able to to apply it to our lives perfectly or live a a perfectly moral life. It's very easy to do that and to to develop for ourselves a system of works-based salvation, is it not? I think when we really look at this word and what it means to eagerly wait Christ as the evidence of salvation, means that our heart is open 
to taking. I told you it's based on the word to receive or to welcome. To receive what has already been offered towards us. I'm, I'm not going Arminian on you, so you calm down. God has made an offer that is available to all. His covenant of grace has been established not just for a particular people in the ancient world, but for all people who would come to know Him. If they would welcome Him. What's remarkable about salvation is how simple it is and how confusing that makes it. By faith, we're able to approach His throne, and by faith, we're able to welcome Him. By faith, we're able to restore a lost and fallen or fallen way where we've gotten distracted by all of the things that we shouldn't be focused on. By faith, we're able to return to a restored relationship with God where we're able to worship Him. And you can apply this to your life too. Imagine a friend that you've had a falling out with. Imagine a loved one that you find it difficult to speak with them. If you've ever fallen under conviction about the need to repent of a, of a lack of forgiveness and, and you tried to pursue forgiveness and failed, let me give you this tip of advice. The trick's in the Bible. You forgive somebody with faith. The way that you forgive someone is by applying faith to that relationship. By saying that we're going to move past it. I love the book of Hebrews because it pulls so many of these things out. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with the sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. We have a high priest who's able to set aside our sins if we will accept what He offers us. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank You for salvation that is offered to so many, God. God, I thank you for the perfect sacrifice of the cross that is able to be applied to our hearts some 2,000 years later. God, I thank you for the, the real holy place that is in heaven where your work is carried out, not repeatedly since the foundations of the world, but once and for all. God, I thank you for the ability that you've given to us this evening to know that we are forgiven once and for all. Help us to walk a life where we eagerly wait for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.